Our text for this afternoon is in Esther chapter 4, and we'll be beginning in verses, or verse 1, and we will read uh, to the end of the chapter. So Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. And if you're there, and if you're able, would you please stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. Esther chapter 4, and verse number 1. When Mordecai learned... All that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree was reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away, and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Thank you. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer as we ask for God's blessing on the sermon this morning? Dear Father, Lord, God, we thank you for this passage, and Lord, we thank you for revealing to us who you are in this passage. Lord, in this entire book, you reveal so much to us about who you are, even though your name is not mentioned. Lord, I pray that as we look at the story in this section of it, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit 
would touch the hearts and open the eyes of every single person in this room, Lord. And God, I pray that you would feed us through your word today. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, throughout our time in the book of Esther, we've talked a lot about the sovereignty of God and the providence, the providence of God. And it's expected. In this book, that's probably the biggest theme. No one really can read Esther without thinking of the providence of God. And as we begin, I would like to read a quote from the preacher Charles Spurgeon as he talks about the providence of God in the natural world. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move one atom or more less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a tree is as, for, as, is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. In other words, everything that happens in creation, from the most extraordinary to the most ordinary, things that we don't even see, is just as ordered by God's hand as the other is. And looking at our text today, we see just this. God's hand in the ordinary things, things that don't seem miraculous, but are nonetheless governed by God's hand. Last week we saw, if you were to look back in chapter 3 and verse 12, that the king's scribed, or the king's scribes were summoned to come to the king on the 13th day of the first month. And this is when they conspired against the Jews. Now, if you were a Jew and you were reading the book of Esther, this date would stand out to you. You would notice something. You see, this date, the 13th day of the first month, this was the eve of their Passover celebration. What that means is, as Israel, as the Jewish people are preparing to celebrate God's deliverance for them from a Gentile nation, at this exact day, another Gentile nation is conspiring to destroy them. So perhaps the Jew reading Esther is thinking, how will God deliver his people this time? Perhaps he'll send amazing plagues to the capital of Persia. Perhaps he'll drown the armies as they come for the Jews in waters. But as we, as we continue in this book, we won't find anything like that. We won't find any amazing miracles. Instead, we will see God's deliverance come in a very ordinary way. Not in the great miracles that we see in Egypt, but in ordinary ways. Now, I think for most of us, uh, it's easy for us to think in two categories. On one hand, there are amazing things. There's miracles that are done by God. And then on the other hand, there are things that just happen naturally. If God does something, then it's a miracle. But if something happens naturally, then that's not God. That's just how the world works. Perhaps you've heard this. Maybe there's Christians and they're praying for someone who's in the hospital. 
and this person is sick. They're not deathly sick. This is a sickness that people usually are cured from. But they're in the hospital, they're under the care of doctors, and they're healed. And the Christians, they praise the Lord and they thank him for answering their prayer. But very quickly they're told, don't thank God for this. Thank the doctors. This wasn't a miracle. This is just what we expected. But what is this way of thinking? It's this idea that if God does something, then natural causes can't explain it. But if nature does something, then it's not God. Another example, imagine farmers in a drought and they're praying for rain and they've been without rain for a very long time. Well, when rain comes and their prayer is answered, is that prayer only answered if that rain cloud appeared out of nowhere? If it was just a rain cloud created out of nothing? Or is that prayer still answered if that rain cloud had been brewing for months, naturally? The answer is yes. Both the miraculous and the ordinary, all things from the greatest thing to the smallest thing, is by the hand of God. Ultimately, everything, no matter what it is, things that we could point at and say, wow, that's a God thing. That is something that only God can do. From that to just what we would expect every morning, every afternoon, all things are by God's hand. And here in this text, we will see God's hand both in the participation of his people and in the prayers of his people. So first, let us look here at God's hand in the participation of his people. In this passage, we have an exchange between Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai is pleading with Esther to use her position that she's gotten through her beauty, maybe her personality, to use this position to go to the king and plead on behalf of her people. But she knows the risk. She says in verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. It had been a whole month since the king had called for her. Perhaps the favor that she had in his eyes had, gone, had grown cold. Perhaps the relationship, the fire just isn't there anymore. And he hasn't called for her. And she knows that if that scepter isn't put forward, there's only one law, meaning there's no exceptions, the death penalty. But then Mordecai, he responds with what may be the most famous section of this entire book. He says there in verses 13 and 14, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, here it is, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now notice that he says relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Yes, it's true that God is sovereign. 
It is true that God is in control of all things. And we know that God will remember and uphold the covenant made with Mordecai's fathers. Even if they were to die, God would bring deliverance to Israel. But then he goes on in the next verse and he says, Who knows, Esther, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Was Esther placed in this position for such a time as this? The answer is yes. Now, why was she in this position? Was she naturally just the really maybe ugly, simple-looking girl? But then when she stood in front of the king, a miracle happened. And the king's eyes changed, and he saw her completely differently, beautiful. Well, no. We don't get any hint that something like that happened. It seems like she's the queen because of her beauty, maybe because of her personality. It doesn't seem like there's any miracles going on. But did God put her there? The answer is yes. God has brought Esther for such a time as this. And notice that Mordecai is including Esther's participation in this. I think many times we have the wrong idea about God's providence. Let me explain what I mean. I think many times if we were Mordecai, maybe we would have sent a message to Esther saying something like, Esther, there has been this horrible law made by the king. Everybody is terrified. But Esther, hit your knees. We know that God is sovereign, and we know that he will take care of this. So let's just watch and let's pray. I think many times that's something that we might say. And it comes from something good. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God is in control. But sometimes we forget that many times God accomplishes his purpose using his people. When I say participation of his people, I don't mean that us and God are accomplishing things together on equal terms. What I mean is that we, God's creation, are tools in God's hand. God can use his people to carry out his will. I think uh, many of us, we've heard the illustration of a Christian man who is stuck in a flood, in a storm. Maybe you've heard this illustration before. And the, the rain is coming down, the floodwaters are rising, and a Christian man says, I trust God that he will save me, which is good. Well, a family comes up in their car, and they tell the man, get in our car. We're getting out of the city. We're going someplace safe. Come with us. We have to escape. But the man says to them, no, I trust God. He will save me. So the family, they go off in their car. But then the water rises higher. Another man comes up in a canoe, and he says to the man, get in my canoe. The water is rising. A flood is on the way. We have to escape. But then the man, he continues to say no. He says, no, I have faith in God that God will save me. So the man in the canoe leaves. And then the rain continues. The flood is rising higher. Now the man is on the second floor of his house, and a police motorboat shows up. And the policeman says, get in the motorboat. You will die here if you do not leave. But the man says, no. I have faith in God that he will save me. So the motorboat leaves. Eventually, the floods rise higher and the man is on his roof. 
I don't think this is a real story, otherwise it's really sad. <laughs> but the man is on his roof, and a helicopter shows up. And a rescue man comes down on the ladder, and he says, Sir, this is your last chance. You have to get on here with me, or you will die. But the man folds his arms, and he says, No, I have faith in God that God will save me. The helicopter leaves, the water comes up, the man is swept away, and he dies. Well, what was the problem with the man's thinking? The problem was that he was expecting a miracle. The a problem with his, with his thinking was that God could not save him by ordinary means. God could only save him if it was a God thing. What we say, if this was something that nobody could explain. Maybe if God had miraculously evaporated the waters, then that would have been God. Or maybe if God had lifted up the water and thrown it into the ocean, then the man could have said, this was God. But if he had gotten in the car, in the canoe, in the boat, then he thought, then I would have been saved by people, just by ordinary natural things and not by God. See, the purpose of that illustration is that it shows that God many times works through means in his creation. Many times God works through people. God works through doctors. Healing is of the Lord, but God works through doctors. Salvation is of the Lord, but God works through the preaching of the gospel. God works through relationships between us and unbelievers. God works through means to carry out his purpose. And that doesn't mean that it's not him doing it. It just means that God has graciously brought us into what he does and he works through the participation of his people. And I ask you, as we think about our lives, what is it that we're trusting God for in our life? It's good that you're trusting in God. Absolutely, it's good that you believe in the sovereignty of God, that you believe that God is in control and that he will provide for you. And that his providence is behind all things. But don't fall in to a very common pitfall for many Christians who, though they believe in the sovereignty of God, they forget that God delights to use means. As we look in history, we see a man who was named William Carey. You might know him as the father of modern missions. Well, this was years ago. And William Carey was at a meeting of Baptist leaders. These were particular Baptists. So these were Baptists who believed the sovereignty of God. They believed that God was sovereign even in the salvation of the lost. Today we may call them Reformed Baptists. But he was at this meeting and he was trying to get the leaders to believe that or to put some value in overseas missions. Well, while he was speaking on the importance of missions, an older minister stood up and he said to him, maybe not angrily, I'm not sure, but the man said to him, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. Well, eventually in response, William Carey had to write a pamphlet entitled An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. In other words, things had gotten to the point where William Carey had to write a book basically saying, hey guys, just maybe 
God wants to use us for the conversion of the lost. Eventually, people listened to him, and he was able to found the particular Baptist missionary society with some friends, and he was able to go to India, and he was able to translate the scriptures through, through knowledge that he had acquired through studying. He was able to preach the gospel to the people there, and there were amazing things done. But why was this plea even necessary? Why did he even have to write this book? Well, the problem was that the people of his day, while firmly believing in the sovereignty of God, something that is absolutely true, while firmly believing that salvation is of the Lord, which is absolutely true, they forgot that God uses means, that God uses people. When I say means, that, mean that, that means that God uses tools. He uses things that might seem natural and ordinary, but God uses them to bring about extraordinary things such as the salvation of the lost and the deliverance of his people under the Persian Empire. And again, I ask you, is there something that you're trusting God for right now? Maybe you're trusting God that you would gain favor in your job. It's good that you're trusting God for this. But don't fall into the pitfall to think that you should just go to work, do nothing, keep your head down, and just allow God to work miracles in everybody's minds. Perhaps God will use you to bring favor for you in your job. Perhaps you think about your marriage and you're praying for your marriage, which is absolutely a good thing. Of course you should pray for your marriage. But don't think that you can just neglect your marital duties. You should neglect love for your husband and your wife and just expect miracles to show up. Because yes, while we pray for our marriage, while we, while we pray for our jobs, while we pray for raising our children, and while we pray for meeting the needs of those around us, we recognize that perhaps God uses people. God uses the stuff that we do. God uses our obedience. God uses us for times such as these. And yes, while we believe that God is sovereign and while he is in control, we are still obeying him and trusting both things, that while we work, God is working through us. We don't sit around waiting for miracles while neglecting what he tells us to do. Instead, we work and we obey and we trust that God is there working through us. Believing in the sovereignty of God doesn't mean that we let go and we let God. If what we mean by that is that we just sit around and wait for miracles. But no, while we continue to obey, we trust that God is working. Now we see that in the participation of people. But here in this passage, we also see the hand of God in the prayers of his people. Look with me again at verses 15 and 16. Esther is preparing to go to the king, and she tells Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now she's agreed to go along with what Mordecai has requested. Even at the end, she bravely says, if I perish, I perish. Now if you notice, 
though the point that we're looking at here is God's hands in the prayers of his people, there is no specific mention of prayer here. Now, usually when fasting is mentioned, prayer goes right along with it. So perhaps there's a reason that the word prayer is left out when it says fasting. In fact, as you read through Esther, you'll notice, as we've mentioned before, that not only is God's name not mentioned, but neither is prayer. There's no mention of God's name. There's no prayers. There's no miracles. It seems like a very ordinary book. In fact, this has caused some people to question whether or not Esther even belongs in the Bible. I mean, how can a book that doesn't mention God's name, doesn't mention miracles, doesn't mention prayers, how can this be a part of the Bible? In fact, we have evidence that some people went so far to add prayers into this book. Now, we only find that in Greek translations. We won't find it in any other sources, so it's obviously an addition. But it shows that people looked at Esther and they thought, this seems too ordinary. It's not spiritual enough. Now, the absence of prayer has also maybe caused people to think, as we've mentioned in other sermons, that perhaps the Jewish people here, uh, they weren't as Jewish as they should be. Perhaps their faith in the Lord wasn't where it ought to be. Perhaps they were ritually fasting. But perhaps they truly did turn to the Lord in prayer. This has been a point of disagreement through, for a long time. But here's the question. Let's say, as most people would say, that they did turn to the Lord and they were praying, and they were fasting, and they were going to God. The question is, would it have made a difference? Would God still deliver his people whether they asked him to do so or not? Well, just as God's hand is seen in the action or the participation of his people, God's hand is also seen in the prayers of his people. You see, just as we shouldn't say, God is sovereign, God is in control, so it doesn't matter what I do. We also shouldn't say, God is sovereign, God is in control, so it really doesn't matter if I pray or not. Those are two mistakes that we should be aware of. We should never fall into one of those common pitfalls. You see, did God know about this law? Yes. Did he know what the Jews needed? The answer is yes. But just as God knows all of our needs, and just as God knows all of our desires and the things that we need, the things that we want, God invites us to bring those needs and to bring those desires to him. You see, the reason that our prayers are brought before God are not to convince God of doing something that he doesn't want to do. Whenever we pray, we're not trying to make God any better than he is. What we are doing is we are deepening our dependence on him. Prayer doesn't exactly change God, but it changes us. Our relationship with God is deepened. Our trust in him and dependence on him is deepened. And just as God uses the participation of his people in our actions as tools for caring about his will, very mysteriously, God also uses the prayers of his people 
as part of the way that he carries out his will in this world. There's no reason for us to think that just because God is sovereign, that we shouldn't pray. Or that just because God is sovereign, it doesn't matter what we do. R.C. Sproul was once asked a question, does prayer change God's mind? And R.C. Sproul replied to them, the answer is no. Prayer doesn't change God's mind, but it does change things. Now, what does that mean? What it means is that while prayers don't change God's mind, things change according to God's sovereign will, which he works through the means of our prayers. Now, what does that mean? It sounds mysterious, and I think sometimes because it doesn't really make sense in the way we see things, we neglect it. But just as Esther didn't say, God will deliver the Jews without me. She also didn't say, God will deliver the Jews whether I pray or not. Imagine if she had responded to Mordecai, Mordecai, sit down. God will deliver the Jews without me, without you, and without the prayers of his people. But she didn't respond that way. And the author of Esther doesn't want us to think that way. Instead, we should never forget that just as God uses people, he also uses our prayers. And like I said earlier, we shouldn't forget one while hold the other. It's true that if you go to work or if you're there in your marriage and you're praying, when I say that God uses the participation of his people, that doesn't mean neglect prayer, don't trust in God, and then just do it all. And when I say that God uses his prayers in the dependence of us on him, that doesn't mean go into your room, pray, and then neglect any sort of obedience in trying to trust God in what you do. No, both of them have to be together. That is how God works. God is in control of all things, but as he controls and as he works through history, he is using his people, both in how they obey, how they trust, and how they do good in this earth. And he also uses our prayers as we go to him in dependence. Both the miraculous and the natural are God's working. It's interesting that this entire book, it seems so ordinary. As we mentioned earlier, there's no mention of God's name. There's no miracles at all. There's no prayers, not even a hint of something supernatural. But still, we see God's hand. God is working through things that seem very ordinary. And maybe for you, perhaps you've been here for a while, and you're thinking about the future, and maybe there's worries in your mind. And you've heard sermons on providence. And those sermons and those messages were made to bring you comfort. So as you're thinking about your future, and you're thinking about the stress in your life, and you hear about God's providence, and it comforts you, I hope that doesn't comfort you in the sense of, okay, God is in control, so I can just sit back and I'll just watch him take care of it all. No, I hope that as we look at how the Bible tells us about providence, we trust that God is working. 
But with that trust, we trust that God is working through us. Or perhaps it would be better to look at the other way around. As we are working, as we are obeying, at the same time, we are trusting that God is working in and through us. And perhaps you're visiting with us. Perhaps you are not a Christian yourself. And perhaps you're wondering why you're here. Maybe you found this church through Google. Maybe a friend invited you. Maybe on normal days you're not at church on Sunday morning. I'm not sure. But you probably didn't wake up this morning just like a robot and then some miracle brought you here. You just fell into a trance and here you are. That's probably not what happened. Perhaps it seemed like very ordinary reasons you're here. But I want to tell you this, that whatever ordinary reason brought you here, it was directed by the hand of God. Perhaps God used very ordinary things to bring you here to hear an extraordinary message. You see here, we talk about a man named Jesus who died on a cross. You see, the God of Esther and Mordecai, he delivered the Jews here in a very ordinary way. But that God extraordinarily took on flesh and became a man. He was born of a virgin extraordinarily. And then he lived what seemed to most people to be a very ordinary life. While on the cross, by what seemed to be ordinary things, political reasons, a friend who had greed and wanted money, what seemed to be very ordinary things put him on a cross where miraculously he gave up his own life and then was naturally dead. But then three days later, he miraculously was raised from the dead and he appeared to ordinary women, then to ordinary men, who went out and they told the message that he took death in our place. That God became flesh he became a man, just like you and, me, you and me. He became a person, but he died in our place. And then three days later, he defeated death, and he defeated the grave. And perhaps whatever ordinary reason brought you here, you came here to hear an extraordinary story. And God has brought you here to hear that story. Because when Jesus died and was resurrected, he said, I have the keys to death. I have the power over the grave. And if you come to me, if you trust in me, I will take you through that door. That power that I have over death will come to you and I will save you. You see, that's the extraordinary message that God has shown to us. That's the extraordinary message that has actually gone through history by what seems to be sometimes ordinary means, but it's absolutely from the hand of God. And if you are here and you're not a Christian, I encourage you through ordinary words, but a very powerful message, to turn to your creator, your creator who became a man, died and was, and was resurrected and offers you eternal life. And for those of us here who are Christians, and we have come to the Lord, and we do trust him to save us, as we live throughout our life, and as we believe that God is sovereign, 
and we believe that he is in control of all things, let us never forget that God delights to use his people. God delights to use us to accomplish his will. And let us never forget that God also invites us to bring our prayers to him and to trust him to work through what sometimes seem to be very ordinary things, but God is working throughout all of history to bring about his extraordinary purposes. So would you now join me in prayer as we go before him and ask him to help us. Father, Lord, I thank you, God, that you are not only here when a miracle happens. Lord, we thank you that throughout our lives, what seems ordinary, you're always there. You're directing us. And Lord, we thank you that in our history, you sent your son. God, that though we fell and though we turn away from you and we run from you, God, you don't let us run without coming to us with deliverance. God, I pray that we would turn to that deliverance, Lord, that we would place our faith in you, and Lord, that you would hear and you would turn to us. God, we thank you for the blessing of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in every single one of us who are here. And Lord, that your will would be done. Lord, and we trust you that you will do it in whatever way that you choose fit, whether that's through us or through miracles. But Lord, we trust and we love you, Lord, in all that you do. God, I pray that you would be with us now in the remainder of this service. Lord, that you would strengthen our hearts, that you would turn our eyes to your Son, Lord, and that you would make us more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.